0: are in and this is our late July monthly episode.
1: bit of a gap there between uh, episode two and three.
0: It just makes the anticipation greater you know
1: Well it was a good break uh, I had to do some moving. you had a couple things to handle on your end but it's uh, it's good to be back with a uh, extremely interesting topic.
0: Oh yeah, this one was I'm sarcastic.
1: See, fun, I can't—I yes.
0: can't even tell. I can see fun. your face, and I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not.
1: This is a fun topic. Trust me. All right. I'm Kaylee. My name is Jake. If you haven't watched, <laughs> if you haven't listened to the podcast before, this is a veterinary student-oriented podcast where we cover veterinary medicine topics as well as just general student life topics, potentially in the
0: future. Also in. Announcement world, stay tuned for a exciting new feature that we'll have coming up. Hopefully released in about two weeks. Yeah, what is more it? info there?
1: Oh. I'm learning with the the listeners here, so this is a good this is good. Things are coming on the horizon.
0: Yeah. All right, as you guys can see from the name of this episode, we are going to talk about Toxoplasma gondii, also been pronounced gondi and gondi.
1: gondi for sure you sure it's gondii
0: i've heard people say toxoplasma gondii and that one's funner to say so i think I i'm gonna go google with that thinks. okay you you look up how to say it and while i introduce everywhere from cysts to crazy cat ladies we are going to cover it all with this parasite it is considered to be one of the most successful parasites in the world and there well, are just I had,
1: I had google translate on spanish and it for some reason, I kept saying Gondi, and I'm like, what the, fuck? how far <laughs> yes. off are we? All right, where's English here? Scottish Gaelic. Oh, there's no sound for that one. Aw, oh, man. That would be cool. All right, where's English? I would have been saying it's Scottish Gaelic the entire time, if there were. Oh, wow, you were right. eye.
0: Oh, really? Why are you wow. so surprised that I'm right?
1: I guess I thought one of the eyes would be silent. I don't know.
0: When you go into uh, second year, you can correct everyone on how they say it. No, sorry. I'm a parasitologist gondii. now.
1: Those <laughs> no, of the same one parasite.
0: But you okay. will get that question right on the exam. We're gonna probably use Toxoplasma gondii and Toxoplasmosis interchangeably. The parasite is Toxoplasma Gondii. The disease is toxoplasmosis. So crazy, I think that's
1: a that's a scary disease name. Toxoplasmosis.
0: I know it's long and I was uh telling somebody about the idea for the episode and they were like what's the what's the generic term I'm like toxoplasmosis yeah, that's like there's that's no, the name the common name yeah no
1: sugarcoating coating that one that's for sure considered one of the most successful parasites in the world i was reading that over they, there's estimates that over the half the world population has had it or is currently suffering from toxoplasmosis
0: yeah i saw that we'll get into it with cyst formation Holy yeah, this is going to seem like a really scary episode because it seems like we're all going to die of this, but it's really pretty harmless in the long run. And the amount of complications that come up in humans is not that frequent.
1: It's funny, the CDC site on toxoplasmosis, Like we link cats so much, but really they rarely mention cats except for the end. I have a cat, am I at risk? And then they're like, well, just don't bathe in their kitty litter and you and can be fine.
0: So why don't I tell you about the cats?
1: Oh, you couldn't wait for that, but...
0: <laughs> All right. So we've got quite a list of definitions. Well, I do uh, for this episode, but I will go through and explain all the big names. There's lots of big words and we'll see if I can say them right. And then, of course, as always, the definitions will be posted after the episode on our Instagram and Facebook page. But knowing my timeliness. It'll probably be about two weeks. Starting with Toxoplasmosis. Yeah, he's a pretty interesting little sucker to talk about. And it is a real MVP of the parasite world. And I'm going to get in some real uh, numbers later on. He started with humble beginnings down in the Amazon rainforest and is now on every single continent. Toxoplasma can also infect virtually every mammal on Earth. And it is suspected that it was the cause of death for a giant panda in a Chinese zoo in 2014.
1: Every continent, so even in Antarctica?
0: Yes, I believe so because there's uh, seals that can get infected. Oh, did I mention that if you've ever owned a cat, there's a chance that you've also been infected? I probably have it. I don't know about Jake, he's not a cat person. Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite which means that it is a single-celled organism in the kingdom of protista so other notable headliners from this group are Chagas disease Leishma- leishmaniasis and malaria the are you classic... sure it's
1: leishmaniasis i thought it was a leishmania
0: that's how you want to say it's leishmaniasis
1: you know what you already got the first time right i'm not going to question your pronunciation
0: <laughs> the, i'm sure that i'll find out if i pronounced it wrong later on my lab buddy went to South America last Christmas and uh, we're pretty sure he got leishmaniasis when he got back. He was white. ill. That's another podcast. The classic life cycle of toxoplasmosis is pretty straightforward. It definitive host, meaning that the animal the parasite needs to be in to sexually reproduce is the domestic cat. Its intermediate hosts, which are the hosts necessary for development but not sexual reproduction, can be any rodent or bird. And the dead end host is any animal that doesn't contribute to the parasite's transmission is practically any mammal on earth. So that means that humans can't give it to other humans. But I'll talk about this later. So let's take a deeper dive into the life cycle because it's kind of the basis for all of the problems that we're gonna talk about. Question. Yes. Jake why? The why
1: only sexual reproduction in cats? Why is? What about cats or the cat family? I guess or no idea. Dude, do, does anyone have an idea? I tried to Google that, figure that out, but it just Parasites, over.
0: parasites can be really species specific, and I don't know if it's because of certain proteins or if it's to do with certain diets. But this parasite can survive in like any mammal, but in order to sexually reproduce, it needs to be in a cat. and Intestinal tract. It's kind of weird. Okay. So I'm going to start with uh, when a cat goes poo. So unsporulated oocysts are shed in the cat's feces. So this word sporulation is the process of, specifically in protozoan parasites, it is the process of the oocyst, which is practically an egg going from a non-infectious stage to an infectious stage. So unsporulated means it hasn't matured to be an infectious oocyst yet. When the cat first poops, the oocysts are not infectious. They are typically shed for about only one to three weeks in the infection in the cat. So not, I mean, not a super long time compared to other uh, parasites, which can shed for years, but large numbers of Oocysts can be shed. So now remember this for later. Oocysts take about one to five days to sporulate in an environment and become infective. So they need to be in the environment between one to five days in order for an animal to come by and get infected by it. Before it sporulates, and if you pick up that oocyst, it won't infect you. Intermediate hosts in nature, so this is including birds and rodents become infected after ingesting soil, water, or plant material contaminated with oocysts. So say a bird is looking for a worm in dirt, but a cat, an infected cat previously used that dirt as a litter bot, bird's going to pick it up. The next step is that oocysts transform into tachyzoites shortly after ingestion. Tachyzoite is generally a stage where it is rapidly multiplying. So these tachyzoites localize into the neural and muscle tissue and develop into tissue cyst bradyzoite. From being eaten, it gets into your bloodstream and it can get into it it finds its way into your nerves and muscles and it makes itself a little home there. Bradyzoite is a slowly multiplying in cysted form. So it's gone from rapidly multiplying to it's slowed down and it's becoming a little more dormant in the tissue of rats and birds and mice and all that. Now, cats become infected after they eat an intermediate host that harbors tissue cysts. So this is a cat eating a mouse that it's caught, raw meat. It directly is putting these bradyzoites into its intestinal tract to mature and then produce oocysts. Another thing, though, is that a cat can also become infected directly by ingestion of phorylated oocysts. Now, question:
1: Did yes? you actually like parasitology year two? Was it literally just remembering life cycles? Like yes, that's all it is.
0: It's hard. I wonder how, so much, many. how much
1: of it, really yeah, I just imagine like going to veterinary practice later in life and being like, "Oh, I got this!" Like I figured, I remembered every life cycle. Like who? Like no way you're not googling that or referencing a textbook at the time.
0: Oh it's like, yeah, like, like one of no, those classes totally where you're, to look stuff up but the thing is also in this parasitology class and for writing the navly exam you have to know every species in the major parasites in north america whereas like if you go to small animal practice you're just dealing with small animal worms
1: i guess yeah you just think you know it, it's a nice it'd be nice to be able to be like oh i kind of know like 70 percent of every single parasite we to the point where you could be like yeah i know how to i know what to look for but it just seems like so much what Just make sure you know
0: Echinococcus multilocularis because that one comes up a lot. Okay. That's one we'll probably cover uh, so, on the so podcast. You've prob-
1: you probably got an A-plus in parasitology then, eh?
0: I really like parasitology and bacteriology. It's like my thing. This seems like... So the cat doesn't actually face any consequences or symptoms from this infection, so they're what we call asymptomatic. This is a pretty good thing because the seroprevalence of toxoplasma is estimated to be 30 to 40% of cats in the world have tested positive for antibodies against the parasite, which you can only get from being exposed to it. These numbers change quite significantly depending on the location. So for example, a study found that Giza in Egypt had a seroprevalence of 97.8% of cats, whereas Finland had a survey that found that in the cats they tested, their rate was about 48.3% and it is estimated that one percent of all cats in the world are currently shedding at any given time so that number is pretty constant now rodents on the other hand they face some major side effects in this stuff this is where it gets really cool so normally rodents are instinctually adverse to the smell of cats especially when male cats mark with urine there's been studies that when presented with several different smells the the mice run away from the cat urine over other predators they will head the other way whenever they come across a cat scent when a rodent is infected with toxoplasma a major behavioral change takes place and it was found in a study from 2014 in molecular ecology that infected rats undergo epigenetic remodeling of their neurons this means that the parasite turns on certain genes and turns off others in the brain, and we have no idea how it does that. but the result is that the rodent is now attracted to the smell of cats and seeks them out. They have also been found to have decreased levels of anxiety and travel further and into new areas that they previously would not have ventured to. Generally, the rodents are more are taking more chances and they're bigger risk takers, which, here it is, increases the likelihood of it being eaten by a cat, thus furthering the life cycle of toxoplasma. I mean, if that's not weird and crazy, then what is?
1: That is pretty, that is insane. Wow. I was reading about how the parasite, once it enters cells, uh, like you said, it alters transcriptional processes and kind of prevents cell death and just... You wonder how those things happen, it's incredible. Like I love like what we've discovered about it, but how it's done in the first place. Incredible. The
0: evolution to get to this point where it's like insane. So specialized.
1: Even though you could argue that cats really aren't domesticated still.
0: Oh my cat is totally reliant on me.
1: (laughs) I see like other cats like those munchkin cats and I'm like, Yeah, that's a domesticated cat. some long-haired breeds that, like, are constantly frowning and they just don't seem to like people. I'm like, this does not look like a friendly cat, you know?
0: The const like, the grumpy cats of the world.
1: Yeah. Like, I'm like, what the, like, do you even want to be here, hairy bun? <laughs> <laughs> I-, I guess that's the same for most domesticated animals. It's really only dogs that are like, yeah, this is sick. I love this.
0: <laughs> there was a study uh, actually, I feel bad.
1: Where- I'm feeling bad for cows and pigs now. I'm like, oh, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't <laughs> There There is a study
0: where they took puppies and then they took wolf pups and they raised them at the same time and they were doing tests and they found, I think it they were pretty young, maybe like between four and eight weeks, where they would take treats and one puppy and they would put one treat under a bull and they wouldn't tell them which. And the puppies would look to the humans to point, but the wolf pups would look on their own so dogs oh. have domesticated to uh like knowing our body language where the wolves are wild right so they're like no I don't care about that but dogs look to us for yeah it's cool we should do an episode on domestication
1: okay yeah that sounds cool we've domesticated 20 species yeah so oh really go down the list talk about them yeah I think that's the uh, the number I can't that's cool exactly but
0: all right, Jake, why don't you tell me a bit more about the history of Toxoplasma and how we discovered it?
1: So, as uh, Keeley mentioned, Toxoplasmos, or I guess we'll talk about the actual parasite from now on. Toxoplasma gondii was first described in 1908 by Nicole and Monceau in Tunisia. Uh, at the same time, it was also independently discovered and characterized in Brazil by Splendore.
0: Weird is it that, but, like, at the same time, they both
1: I'm sure it happens all the time. Well, Flindori reported the protozoan in a rabbit, while Nicole and Monceau identified it in a North African rodent, the gundii. Wow. Gundii. Yeah, this way it's it's slightly differently spelled, but yeah, that's probably part of the reason it's called Gandia. Maybe so I'm mispronouncing cool. Um How do you so spell it? 19- I'm going to post
0: a picture of the rodent after.
1: G U N. Oh, it's an ugly Oh. Oh never mind, that's an ear. I thought that was his eye. Oh god.
0: <laughs> oh no, that's cute. Oh, I see oh. what you mean about the ear though.
1: <laughs> oh I thought the eye I'm like, what is this creature? All right. Uh yeah. It's, it's got like road. a hole
0: and then it's got its its ear, the outside in yeah. the inside. Oh, it looks like it regurges into its little babies. Oh that's That was
1: terrifying. Okay. <laughs> um anyway, in nineteen oh nine, Nicole and Mansoul were able to differentiate. The gondii from the protozoan leishmania which i guess are very similar uh they named it toxoplasma gondii after the curved shape of its infectious stage so it turns out it has nothing to do with the rodents but that would have been cool because it's very close yeah. so normally it's it's oral it's ingested orally but another way to get it is congenital transfer and it was funny it was actually the first recorded case uh was by congenital transfer in 1923 in, uh, yeah, sorry, it was a, the first recorded human case, uh, was by congenital transfer uh, transmission in 1923. Uh, it wasn't identified as Toxoplasma gondii at the time. It was not until 1937 that the first kind of real scientific analysis of T. gondii took place. Uh, and it was analyzed using techniques previously developed to inspect viruses. Uh, in 1937, Sabin and Olitsky analyzed T. gondii in a laboratory uh, in monkeys and mice and showed that T. gondii was an obligate intracellular parasite, and that you know, mice-fed contaminated food uh, and, you know containing the T gondii spores also contracted the infection.
0: What does obligate intracellular parasite mean, Jake? <laughs> uh,
1: well, from my limited experience uh, I've assumed that it's a parasite that needs uh, to live inside cells in order to survive. So kind of like malaria.
0: Yeah, which like I believe is
1: intracellular. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so ultimately in 1937, it was confirmed that T. gondii is a pathogen that's transmissible between animals. Now, while the first congenital case was in humans, was recorded in 1923, uh, T. gondii was actually first described as a human pathogen in, in 1939, so quite a bit later, at the baby's hospital in New York City.
0: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, this is one of those cases where uh, the parasite was discovered in an infant girl delivered by cesarean section. And the infant, three, uh, after birth, the infant had developed seizures and retinitis in both eyes after three days. Uh, the infant then developed encephalomyelitis, and died at one month of age. Uh, Researchers were able to isolate T. gondii from the brain tissue of the infant, and subsequent intracranial injection of this brain tissue into mice, rabbits, and rats also produced encephalitis in the animals.
0: Yeah, I'll talk about the effects in humans a little later, but it's pretty nasty when kids are given it in utero from their mother. That's the biggest concern. Yeah,
1: so... Ultimately, T. gondii was kind of off the radar primarily uh, throughout the early 1900s until the 70s, when the rise of immune suppressant treatments for a variety of diseases uh, became more, more commonplace, especially after organ transplantation, and as well as the subsequent AIDS epidemic, which results in the disease that severely compromises the immune system of those suffering from it. Now, the characterization of disease with patients who have compromised immune systems versus those who are immunocompetent is very different uh, when talking about toxoplasmosis. Uh, As we're about to mention here, normally it's almost completely symptom-free in immunocompetent people, but it presents a, a very serious challenge for those who are immunocompromised. That okay, that's is so the interesting
0: that you mentioned that it c- came up and got more obvious or I guess the prevalence went up when the AIDS epidemic hit.
1: I guess the prevalence of serious cases went up for sure. Like you said, most people probably have had it or have it and suddenly when you see people reporting with more serious symptoms, you know, it kind of coincided with that that period of time for sure.
0: Yeah, and I just the craziest thing is like we're so focused on humans all the time and this is where i think one health might have been helpful because they didn't even know it was in cats until 1942 yeah well and maybe we could have prevented some infection all right i guess it's time for the effects on humans because we most definitely be infected so how do we get it So the most common ways are eating undercooked meat, food, or water contaminated with fecal material, like Jake said, transplacentally from mother to fetus, and rarely blood or organ transplants. So the person who has donated the blood or the organ has to have an active infection. Um, Yeah, okay. So it cannot be spread person to person. Up to half of the world's human population is infected by toxoplasmosis but have no symptoms. So that's allegedly. Yes. Uh in the United States, approximately 11% of people are infected, but in some areas of the world it can be over 60%. So approximately 200,000 cases of congenital toxoplasmosis occur a year, and you know, like the consequences are just massive. Uh so very briefly, there are acute, latent and skin infections that I will cover in humans. Acute infection is generally asymptomatic. In immunocompromised individuals, there are influenza-like symptoms, and there can be more serious complications of the eyes and brain that can occur. A latent infection is a long-lasting one for for your whole life. So it begins acutely with the few like symptoms, but it is followed by tissue cyst formation. So like what happens in the rodents happens in us. So these can occur anywhere from your muscles which are pretty harmless to insisting in your brain and can cause complications later in life. It is estimated that up to 50% of the population has been exposed which means that we, anyone who has been exposed has the potential to have these cysts. Now the last type of infection is classified under skin and is generally infants and newborns. There can be lots of skin manifestations as well as the previous infections in newborns. And it is quite serious because as Jake said, you can get encephalomyelitis, you can get uh, the retinitis. So a lot of infants, if they survive this infection when they're born, will grow up blind. They can grow up deaf, have seizures, neurologic complications for the rest of their life. So why is it recommended that pregnant women do not clean cat litter boxes? Well, remember when I said it can take one to five days for the oocysts to sporulate? That means that when you do your litter change every few days, the oocysts have had time to become infectious. So it's really, really important that if a pregnant person cannot avoid cleaning it, that they wear gloves and wash their hands afterwards so not to accidentally like touch their face and contaminate themselves. Also, daily litter changes is an option because it needs at least one day to become infectious. Now, the big so, worry, what?
1: We're doing like the, the machine that does that for you. That's like a way to kind of totally avoid that risk, right?
0: Yeah, and avoid it's touching super it. Super
1: expensive contraptions. Yeah. Any way to avoid really directly touching because it's, it's not the, it, it doesn't get kicked up in the dust, right? It's when you touch, when your hands, put them around your face, that, that, that's where it becomes a problem.
0: Yeah, so I think maybe the dust from that, but not generally breathing it in so much. Maybe they're, the oocysts are a little denser. But uh, I also okay. read that it is not, it's is not—it's very, very unlikely that the oocysts stick to the cats fur. So like petting a cat or something isn't really a mode of transmission. Yeah, so the big worry is that if the mother hasn't been infected before and she gets infected during pregnancy, she can pass it on to her fetus and infect them which is where all these really severe nervous diseases come from now this is definitely a concern in a lot of third world countries where the prevalence in humans is much higher it is also a correlation between larger feral cat population and large amounts of rodents and higher cases of congenital toxoplasmosis. just geographically speaking this is my favorite part let's talk about mind control in humans when the media got hold that toxoplasma can infect humans and it causes all these behavioral changes in rodents the crazy cat lady syndrome was coined and began making the rounds and especially when it came out that scientific papers could link the parasite to several mental disorders and behavioral problems. And I will cover a few of them. But correlation doesn't necessarily cause causation so there's not super strong evidence for all of this the term crazy cat lady syndrome was drawing on both the stereotypical and popular cultural references but it has never been proven that infection with toxoplasmosis in humans has the same cat attraction effects that it does in rodents even though you know that would be kind of cool it's never been found Even more interestingly, there is a suspected correlation between cat ownership in childhood and the later development of schizophrenia. So studies after that showed that T. gondii was not a causative factor in later psychoses. Um, But there is some evidence that links T. gondii to schizophrenia. And two 2012 papers found that the rates of antibodies to toxoplasma in people with schizophrenia were 2.7 times higher than in controls. What they can't prove is that if the infection came before or after the development of schizophrenia. As well, now this one's a really interesting little tidbit. The antipsychotic drugs used in schizophrenia have been shown to inhibit the replication of toxoplasma tachyzoites in cell culture right? Okay. that's It's so crazy. So the tachyzoites are the rapidly dividing ones that occur when first ingested. Yeah, it's really weird. To wrap up this section, latent infection and cyst formation has also been linked to Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. So depending on the area of the brain, if it insists there, they have found that there is a possible link. Well, latent T. gondii infection in humans has been associated with a higher risk of automobile accidents. There's a couple of reasons why, like maybe like reduced uh, reaction times or more risk taking behavior. That was also seen with the rodents, but they're not quite sure. All right, Jake, why don't you uh, take us into the public health side of things here?
1: So as Kaylee mentioned, Toxoplasma gondii came from Central America. Well, we assume it originated in the Amazon, so Central, South America, but it is currently on all seven continents. And that's just due to its extremely resistant spore phase and its just non-susceptibility to most antiparasitics. What's interesting about this specific parasite is we're actually finding it in the Arctic. So above, you know, north, north of Canada right now, uh, some populations of, of Inuit people have been found to be infected with protozoan due to consuming raw meats. Now, this is a, it's quite a common practice in northern Canada to consume raw whale meat, raw seal as part of their diet. And we were kind of wondering, well, how is this, you know, this Central American, South American parasite winding up all the way there? and. Some, some theories uh, about that relate to the fact that as the oocysts remain viable for months, they can be transported northward via rivers and ocean currents that could subsequently infect Arctic fish, which would eventually be consumed by marine mammals, which are then eaten by Inuit people. Another theory is that migratory terrestrial and marine intermediate hosts may be responsible for carrying this, the T. the ice tissue cyst to the Arctic migratory terrestrial so intermediate hosts like birds
0: yeah i think so <laughs> uh
1: so yeah these migratory terrestrial animals could be birds most likely birds yeah coming back home north in the summer so as i said the the most likely source of t gondii infection in inuit people is from consumption of traditionally prepared foods including the meat and organs from intermediate hosts such as seal whale and perhaps birds which is often consumed raw Now, tying in this end with climate change, northern migration of felids may increase the prevalence of T. gondii in Arctic wildlife. Continuing on, not only does climate change affect the migration habits of felids, climate change also tends to increase the infection and prevalence of T. gondii in the north, just simply due to the increased temperature of the Canadian Arctic over time which was once a location that was just too cold for its survival. And then as we see more and more snow melt and precipitation in northern climates, uh, we also see increases in the amount of T. gondii oocyst that are transported by river flows. Shifts in the migration patterns of birds, rodents, and insects can impact the distribution of T. gondii due to their roles as reservoir and, and vector species. Not only this, but increased urbanization And natural environmental degradation are also suggested to affect the distribution and prevalence of T. gondii transmission, as well as increase the risk of infection in northern climates.
0: I read the weirdest thing that it's been hypothesized that anchovies that travel around the ocean are helping spread toxoplasma between seals.
1: I think once we figure out how it reproduces and why it's only in cats, maybe there's something special about cats or felines in general that can target and just pretty much eradicate this you know this parasite from the the world
0: no we'll never eradicate it
1: wow canada has eight million cats holy crap eight million okay so that's a problem right there 38 percent of households have cats Holy crap. One to two million one to one point two to four million stray cats, probably about ninety percent of those are in Montreal. <laughs> and the US it's has about a hundred million cats. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now if you think about it, one percent of those is dropping oocysts and is actively shedding toxoplasma. And it's like it's it's a ubiquitous parasite like we'll never get it out of the environment because it's just
1: well okay now assume that we figure out how and why it only reproduces in cats
0: so yeah but see we've tried to make a vaccine for it in cats and it did its efficacy was very questionable it didn't seem to do anything okay but yeah you know there might be in the future like there might be opportunity to make a vaccine in humans but seeing as in cats it didn't work well who knows like especially for uh mothers that are hoping to get pregnant like people trying for kids i actually have a story about someone told me they knew this vet who was trying to get pregnant and she got her titers checked for toxoplasma and she found out she hadn't had it and because she's a vet she's like super at risk so she was trying to give it to herself before she had kids, all right, I guess that's it for toxoplasmosis
1: uh that was that was a surprisingly interesting uh talk.
0: You sound so sarcastic <laughs> uh
1: yeah, I guess you know, having not seen it in class yet, it's probably just you know I'm, it's just like I'm in school right now, you know you want to enjoy your summer vacation, and here you are studying parasites it's just uh no, nah, I'm kidding. This is surprisingly cool. I didn't know about that link to, you know, the potential link, I should say to the stereotype of the crazy cat lady, but it, it is plausible, but it should be interesting to see what comes of the, uh, you know, efforts to create a vaccination for this parasite and the potential, you know, links to, you know, mental diseases and disorders such as schizophrenia and Parkinson's and all those other serious, serious diseases.
0: Yes. Yeah, so as always, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, gotta do the spiel at the end of every episode. And uh, merch in the bio. (laughs) Link in bio. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and review us. Give us five stars. I don't know which platforms have that ability, but do it.
1: Pause out.